So let me uh, add my welcome to uh, Mark's and those you've heard already. It's uh, brilliant to be with you all this morning and to have you joining from home as well. Again, uh, do you keep your Bibles open and those talk notes uh, just to show you where we're going this morning and if uh, that'd be helpful for, for taking notes as well. Let's just pray again. Father, please help us as we look at these wonderful, wonderful words. Please would you show us Jesus more clearly and would we respond to him rightly from what we see. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, when I was a teenager, um, there was a, a trend, you might have seen this, for um, having little bracelets or necklets, what's the word, necklaces, thank you, <laughs> necklaces, anklets, um, having, having little acronyms on them, Christian acronyms. So I think the one I had was push, pray until something happens. And then there was frog, fully rely on God. Although the classic, the biggest one, I think the one that started all off was, of course, WWJD. What would Jesus do? And in a sense, I applaud this, the sentiment, the thought behind it, helping particularly young people think about their behavior um, in certain situations. But there is a rather fundamental flaw with that, not being the second person of the Trinity, often what Jesus would have done and what I could do, rather different things. But this morning, I want to propose another one. I'm not going into the jewellery business, but I, I do want to propose another one for us to grasp hold of. That if we really grasp these letters, the sentiment behind it, would have a profound impact on Lionstown Church family. And my confidence for that is because Paul had that confidence for the Philippians as well. So what is it? It's on the top of your talk notes. T L J. TLJ, those are the three letters that I want us to grasp, to grab hold of. What do they stand for? Well, I've kind of given the game away if you look down just a teeny bit further. Think like Jesus. Think like Jesus. Paul is carrying on explaining what living a life worthy of the gospel is, what it looks like. Last week, he started to explain that, that it was a united, fearless commitment to the gospel. That is what a life worthy of the gospel looks like. And now Paul focuses on the Philippians' thinking, their mindset. And that is, makes sense when we think about it, because our, our thought life, as Mark really helpfully introduced us, uh, introduced a service this morning, our, our thought life, what we think, impacts and determines what we do. So if a friend of ours does something really stupid, uh, what was going through their mind? You know, what was going through their mind to lead, to lead them to do that something stupid? Or an elite athlete, oh, what a brilliant mindset they had. Paul draws, the Philippians draws our attention to our way of thinking, our minds. So have a look down at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. We'll come back to this verse to look at it more wholly, but just see there, it begins and ends with our minds. Although actually more accurately, it's, it's an active thing. It's not just have this mindset. It's more think this way. So it's think the same thing, thinking the one thing. 
And what are they to be thinking? What are we to be thinking? We'll come down to verse 5. We find the same idea yet again. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Or again, better yet, think this way amongst yourselves. Think the way that Jesus thought. Think like Jesus. T-L-J. Well, how did Jesus think? I mean, verse 5 to 8, I'm so glad that we're learning, and I hope you are learning it. These are some of the richest, most beautiful uh, words in all of Scripture. They are showing us the mind of Jesus. It's an incredible window into the thought life, the mindset of Jesus. Did you ever wonder, like, what was going through Jesus' mind, if we can put it that way? What was going through Jesus' mind as he was preparing to leave heaven and come to earth? What was his attitude just before he burst onto the scene in the public ministry? What kept him steadfastly heading to Jerusalem throughout that ministry? What was going on in his mind as he was contemplating the cross? Well, here, in a sense, we find out. We find the mindset of Jesus. We find out how Jesus thought. These are deep, significant words. But just before we look at them, just, just note in verse 5, it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul's saying that you already have this mindset. It is already yours as God's people. It belongs to you. You just need to, to think that way. So my mum my did a, a language degree. And she said that the moment things really clicked into place was when she was living abroad in France and she started thinking in French. That's when you've really got it, when you're thinking French. And I guess Paul wants us not just to speak Jesus, but to think like Jesus. I'm going to read verses 6 to 8. But as I read them, just be think, you be thinking, what was Jesus thinking? So what lay behind the actions, the incredible things that we see he did? Have a look at verse 6. Who, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you were a a child, um, sorry, think like Jesus. Uh, When you were a child, I don't know, perhaps if you're a parent now, do you do it with your children? If you're visiting somewhere and there are a lot of steps, did you count the steps? Kind of just a way of distracting your children, isn't it, really? Or just your child. Um, but as it were, I want us to count the steps down that Jesus takes. Okay, we're going to follow Jesus' descent. But to do that, we need to see the starting point. So the starting point here is, is God. Jesus, God himself. You see that verse 6? Who, though he was in the form of God... Now, don't be put off that, the idea of kind of the form of God. So he wasn't God, but he looked like God. The, the way the word form is used in the Bible is it, it shows the essential characteristics of. So hence the NIV translation, I think, is a good one. It was in very nature God's. He was in very nature God. He had the essential characteristics of God. Here is God himself. 
Jesus in glory with his Father, enjoying relationship from all eternity past. This is God's very nature God. We have our first step down. So verse 6, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Uh, again, the NIV helpfully captures the, 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 the feeling behind this of not something to be used for his own advantage. So a, a, a corrupt politician, say, is going to use the, their position to bring themselves gain. But Jesus wasn't like that. He didn't use his position for his own benefit. He didn't grasp onto it. But do you see how actually verse 6 fits together? I hadn't noticed this before, but who though he was in the form of God, so he was God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Those two things go together. Here is God. What is God's way of thinking? Well, it's completely unlike the gods of this world who are there to, for people to serve them and to, to do stuff for them. But here actually we see that God-like thinking was to not use it for his own benefits. So there's our first step. God, he, he, but he doesn't use that position for his own advantage. Second step, he becomes man. Verse 7 but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus made himself nothing. That is, he, he emptied himself. He emptied himself of, of significance, but he became of no reputation. The one who was fully God, yet became fully man too. He, he added his, the human nature without removing or surrendering any of his divine attributes. Jesus became man. You know, he, he got tired. He got hungry. He knew the pain of stubbing his toe, hitting his funny bone. He, he became man, like mankind, like one of us. God didn't use that position for himself, but became man, became one of us. But not just any old man, but you saw it there in the middle of verse 7. He, he took taking the form of a servant. Although again, if you look at your, your footnote, you see it's a slave. Jesus became a slave. A slave is somebody who works entirely for the benefit or the advantage of somebody else. For Jesus to leave the splendor of heaven and come to an earthly grand palace would have been an incredible thing. But for Jesus to leave heaven, leave glory, and become a servant is even more remarkable. There is no lower position that Jesus could have occupied. So just before he went to the cross with his disciples, Jesus stripped down and untied their sandals and washed their feet. Jesus became a slave. Fourth step. Have a look at verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. The immortal giver of life gave up his life. His death 
for, in the place of, on behalf of others. There, there has never been any act where putting others before self has been more clearly seen than, the cross, uh, than, than Jesus laying down his life. And again, we see that act of submission, of obedience to his father. He became obedient to that point. And then fifth, last one, even death on a cross. Now, living now as we do, I think we have a some, somewhat sanitised view of the cross. Now, I don't know if, if, somebody, if anyone's wearing a, a cross around their chain or on their neck at the moment. But in a sense, the kind of modern-day equivalent would be to be having a, an electric chair hanging around your neck. Okay, because that's what the cross was. Humanity has never created a more degrading or repulsive experience than crucifixion. It was so bad that as a Roman citizen, you couldn't be crucified. It was reserved for criminals and the worst of society. Jesus humbled himself to death, even death on the cross. But the key is this. This is John Calvin speaking. He says, For by dying in this way, he was not only covered with shame in the sight of men, but also accursed in the sight of God. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree, says Moses in Deuteronomy. Jesus died in, in shame before the eyes of all who saw him. He also died in the place of his people, taking the curse, the punishment that they deserve. No one has, has ever started so high and descended so low. I mean, each step is, is simply remarkable. But, but let's just take the start and the end points. God, God himself, very nature God, crucified. The position of somebody magnifies humble acts. So if I were to come to your house and clean your toilets, it wouldn't be a particularly remarkable thing. The queen to come to your house and to clean your toilets would be a more significant thing because the, the position of someone magnifies the humility of the act. And here we have God himself dying the most shameful execution that there could be. How? Why? What was in Jesus' mind as he, as he d- descended in this way? What was he thinking? Well, my summary would be selfless humility. What was Jesus thinking? Selfless humility. Let me just very quickly read through those. Verse 6 again. For though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be used for his own advantage. He was selfless. So therefore he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Selfless humility. But of course, Jesus' humble selflessness, his descent, wasn't the whole story. Indeed, if things had just kind of ended there, there would be some significant questions left in our mind. God's coming down and being crucified, and that's it. Leaves us some big questions. But that's not the end. So verse 9. 
Therefore, God, therefore, because of this, because of his selfless, humble descent, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This exaltation, this has happened in the past. Okay, Jesus didn't stay dead, but three days later was raised by his Father and ascended into heaven to take his place back in glory at the right hand of the Father. And did you see, did you notice, it's not just he has exalted him, he has highly exalted him, abundantly exalted him, above all creation back in his glory. Miss the slide there. This incredible exaltation that has already happened. But there's more to come, more now we're looking to the future. As the one who is now above all things, well, there will be a time when all humanity comes to see that as the case and humble themselves before him. So verse 10, so that, so he's been exalted, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. I think that's kind of spiritual creatures, humankind on earth, um, those who have died, those who are under the earth. Uh, and, and particularly those who died not in submission to him at that time. And every tongue confessed that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day every knee will bow before Jesus. His people in joyful adoration and honour. His enemies in fearful dread. Every knee will bow to the king of all. Every tongue will confess it to be true. How did Jesus think? Well, selfless, humble, and waiting for glory. There was a time for glory, but he would wait for that. That was in the future. This is how Jesus thought. And this is how Paul is calling us to think too. So we, we could, as it were, land there and, and stop, because these are truly remarkable words. But we've got to remember what, where these words come. Because actually these incredible picture of Jesus' life uh, and his, his descent and an exaltation, that they are an example and motivation for the Philippians. And so let's now think of two implications of uh, what, uh, what we see of Jesus here. First one, be united. That's what Paul is encouraging us to do. Come back to verse 2. I know we looked at it briefly before, but Paul in verse 2 is saying, look, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is calling them to be united. You can't miss that point there. The same, the same, one. Last week, Paul was encouraging them to be united as they stand firm for the gospel. And again, but here the unity, what unites us, is our, us all thinking like Jesus. And, and Paul, that's remarkable, really, isn't it? He's in a prison cell. And you know, what would bring Paul joy? Sat in a prison cell. Getting out, that'd be the top of my list. The various things, but, but what brings Paul joy? What brings Paul joy as he sat there in prison would be hearing that the Philippians are united together. 
Unity is so, so important. And so that's what he calls, again, um, what we find there in verse 2, having the same mind, having that same love, love for God, love for one another, being in full accord, or, or, or that's literally of, kind of having the same soul, being one souled together in soul, and having the same love. See, when we are united, when God's people are united, it protects, it guards. When we are all thinking like Jesus, Lions Down Church, when we are all thinking like Jesus, well then we can look over small things, small concerns. So I can look over the fact that the music at church might not be the style that I would like. I can look over the fact that somebody was rude to me. I can look over the fact that we're in a church hall and uncomfortable chairs or whatever. We can look over the fact that things have changed from how they were in the past. Or we can look over the fact that people are resistant to change. When we are thinking like Jesus, selfless and humble, we will be united. Be united, and then secondly, be humble. Because what can cause unity to crumble and crash? Selfish ambition and conceit. Just see the warning in verse 3 as he goes on. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit or, or selfish ambition and conceit. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. You know, self-seeking, self-promoting, wanting to advance me and my prospects, thinking that I'm the best and wanting everyone else to know that I'm the best. Selfish ambition, conceit. Well, that's going to bring that crashing down. There's, there's a, a rather tragic story of a church in America that um, had a, a divide, a split, and they ended up going to court to try and settle who, I think, would get the building. And then the judge ended up saying, look, your denomination should sort it out, and they were there. And so there was a thorough investigation that found that one of the major starting points of this rift was when one of the elders of the church got served a slice of ham that was smaller than the child next to them. It's tragic, quite comical, but tragic, isn't it? That that, something so small could lead to something so big. But where selfish ambition and conceit reign, that's what can happen. But when we think like Jesus, that guards that unity. And so again, what guards that unity? Verse 3 carries on. And so do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility counts others more significant than yourselves. Humility guards this unity. Now, I think generally speaking, we, we tend to think of humility in terms of how we think about ourselves. So if we think about ourselves really highly, then we're proud. If we think about ourselves really lowly, then we're, we're humble. And although there is indeed something to that, and the Bible does talk about it in this way, I think that's not so much what Paul has in mind here. Uh, to summarize, I, I think he's saying, don't think less of yourself, think of yourself less. Don't think less of yourself, think of yourself less. Because see how he goes on in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. 
So you see the same pattern again. So we have negative positive, and now we have another negative positive. So first, look, don't be selfish. Let each of you look not only to his own interests. Don't look at your own interests. Positively look out for the interests of others. Selflessness. Selflessness. Our attitudes and actions are to be utterly other people focused. We don't act for our own advancement. Rather, we count others as more significant than ourselves. We don't work towards my own comfort, happiness, security, but rather for the benefit of others. Now, this kind of humility and selflessness, other people-centeredness, is is kind of an alien concept, isn't it? It was to the Greeks and the Romans. The word humility actually was a kind of negative word. But just to think, you know, the petrol, or when COVID kicked in, panic buying, what's going on? It's me, 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 have I got enough? That our attitude reigns supreme in our world today. Radical selflessness. Our thinking, our priorities, our cares, our behaviour, our love, our plans, our money, our time, directed at other people. Well, that's thinking like Jesus. Feel the challenge of that? Others first. Others first, above myself. It might surprise you to know that Amy has, uh, on the inside of her wedding ring, the name of of a man. But that name is not mine. (laughs) Um, It's not just Amy. I have the same thing. I have a man's name in the middle of my my wedding ring. It's Phil, short for Philippians, followed by 2, 1 to 11. Because this is the passage that Amy and I had read and Mark preached on at our wedding. Because we want that, this to be the attitude at the centre of our marriage. Humble selflessness. You know, it's the attitude that gets home from work at the end of the day and thinks, not what do I want to do, i.e. slump on the sofa and not talk to anyone, but it's what's going to serve my family best. It's the attitude at church that wakes up in the morning going, mm, I don't really want to come, but goes... And doesn't just go and chat to my friends to catch up for myself, but looks out for others. Who's looking lonely? Who's looking lost? Who could I serve? Who could I encourage? Think like Jesus. Because when we think like Jesus, we can, we can never say, that's enough. I've done enough now. Now it's time for me. We saw Jesus, though he was God's humble, selflessly descend even to the point of death on the cross. Think like Jesus. T-L-J. With those three letters, those three words, would they be our mindset? Aligns down to Let's pray. Father, please, as we heard right at the beginning, we need you to be transforming our minds. Father, pray that this mindset set that is ours in Christ that truly this would be our way of thinking. Would we all think like Jesus? Would we be humble and selfless? Please work that in us as we contemplate and treasure Jesus more. In his name and for his glory. Amen. Oh, um,
So memory verse, no surprises this week. Very, Very clearly. Uh, oh, sorry. Yeah. Um, it's the memory verse song. So yeah, do head to the YouTube page, our YouTube page, and you'll see the recording there. If that'll help you along the way. And there's the passage next week that Mark will be preaching on. Cheers.